I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Isaac Saul is a reporter by trade and the founder of Tangle, an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan politics newsletter that summarizes the best arguments from the left and right on the news of the day. Tangle has been recognized by The New York Times, Forbes, The Hustle, Substack, and many others as one of the most successful politics newsletters on the internet. Isaac, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that we're both glad (laughs) that you're here, Isaac, because I certainly am. And I do think your provided intro is a bit modest in describing Tangle, as it is also a five days a week podcast, an Instagram account that regularly posts helpful visual aids and infographics breaking down important news of the day, and a Twitter account. But regarding your newsletter, you just broke the 50,000 subscriber mark on your mailing list, an accomplishment you noted on a recent episode of the Tangle podcast. And that's a big deal. So I just wanted to acknowledge that first. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. We're a little more than three years into this thing. And I like to think of it as a little bit of an experiment, I guess now a proven project, but it was a really cool milestone to hit and a really encouraging one because, you know, when I started, I wasn't totally sure how many people would be interested in what I was trying to put together. So the sky's the limit now. I think the floor is in, which is really exciting and it's a high floor and I hope we get to a million sometime soon. And even more impressive, and have Shark Tank to thank for understanding these metrics, is that nearly one in five of your subscribers are paying members. And that is a fantastic conversion rate. But to get to kind of the impetus, the inciting incident for how you started Tangle, in that October 26th episode marking the milestone, you described Tangle as, quote, a news outlet that values diversity of opinion and debate and nuance and fairness, end quote. Your work has been featured in Time, Vox, New York Daily News and been cited by the New York Times, Washington Post, and even WikiLeaks. This is all your work before Tangle. In 2016, Yahoo News named you one of 16 people whose writing shaped the 2016 election. You've said, quote, my work was getting published in a lot of different places, and I realized people trusted it not based on what I was saying, but based on where I was saying it, end quote. So I guess my first question for you, Isaac, relating it to how you started Tangle, when did you have that epiphany? And how did you come to decide that Tangle was the best path forward for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I I think there are sort of two moments that I point to. One was when I first left the Huffington Post, which was my first job. I got the job as a 23-year-old fresh out of college. I'd applied to about 50 news outlets. And I like to tell people I went to work there not because I was a bleeding heart lib, even though the Huffington Post is definitely a left-wing, left-leaning media outlet but because I applied to 50 other places and only one of them offered me a job and getting a job in journalism was then very hard and is still really difficult today. And when I left the Huffington Post, I learned pretty quickly that wherever I published my writing after that, anybody who took five seconds to Google me would immediately peg me as a liberal because I had some stories published in the Huffington Post And they would use that basically as a bludgeon to kind of hammer me over the head with and discredit any positions I took, especially positions that may have been critical of the Republican Party or a conservative politician or whatever it was, because then it was just a product of my bias and had nothing to do with my reporting or writing or opinion. And that was kind of like my first realization, okay, this might have been A, a mistake, and B, People are really, really siloed in the news space. And then obviously, you know, I think a lot of people after the 2016 election 
there was a lot of looking around and navel gazing in the media space, trying to figure out what was wrong. And there were so many narratives about why journalists and many reporters missed Donald Trump and didn't understand his rise. I am prideful about the fact that I actually thought Trump was going to win and said so pretty publicly leading up to the election. But to me, it was really that a lot of reporters were living in the echo chamber they had created. And a lot of Americans, both on the right and the left, were living in these echo chambers they had created for themselves. And pretty soon after the 2016 election, I had the concept of you know a news outlet that was trusted evenly by people from across the political spectrum that was covering really controversial, difficult topics to talk about. And that was kind of the founding thing, was building something that was trusted by both people on the left and the right and in the center, and not just read by them, but interacted with in a way where they had a genuine respect and belief in what we were doing. And from that goal was the format of Tangle was kind of born, where we very explicitly feature opinions from the left and from the right and from the center, and we're really clear about what's opinion and what's fact and what's my opinion. And, you know, it's worked. We have a really diverse readership and politically diverse readership. And among that readership, we see very even levels of trust and respect in what we're doing from people, regardless of who they vote for or what side of the political spectrum they're on, which I think is super, super unique in the space right now. Yeah, there's so much to, to use an overused word, unpack there. One of the things that I really admire about Tangle is the fact that you're very clear when something is opinion and something is fact. And I think that, and I want to kind of figure this out with you, I feel like that is something that is really infecting or rather the opposite of what you're doing. The idea that you can't really figure out when someone's opinion is in a fact-based piece or how many facts are in an opinion-based piece. I can feel that at places like NPR, at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, places that, and I've said this before on the show, that I used to regularly read or listen to like daily. I used to listen to NPR every single day for hours a day. But now I get this feeling when I'm listening to it, I don't know if what I'm listening to are the facts or are the reporters, and I'm using that word a little lightly, reporters opinion dressed up as facts or if how much is being omitted. I feel the same way when I'm often reading a news story in the New York Times. I can feel the reporter's opinion pushing the direction of whatever the narrative is in that piece. And so I have my own my own theories here, but what do you think started to cause this in mainstream news reporting? And is it fixable at all outside of, of course, smaller organizations, upstarts like Tangle? Is this solvable at scale? And how did it start to happen? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, one thing that all media outlets suffer from on the left and the right is that they try and serve their readers or their viewers what they want. One of the really fundamental challenges of running a media company is that you have to make money. It's a business. And when the business rubs up against the facts, there's a lot of tension there sometimes. You know, That is, how is a headline framed? What does a headline look like? What kind of words are used to get people to click into the article? Because the more people who click in, the more ad revenue and subscribers that article generates. It's about language choices made by editors that they know will or will not upset their readership and maybe cause a bunch of people to unsubscribe or a bunch of people to come out with the pitchforks for something that they've published. All of those things are really 
big challenges that I think the media world faces. And I think one of the things that's happened in the last 10 or 20 years is outlets like the New York Times have started to be read predominantly by people of a certain political affiliation, which is typically center left and to the left of that. And left-wing Americans, Democratic voters, they have certain sensibilities that Wall Street Journal readers and Fox News viewers don't have. And so when the New York Times offends those sensibilities, there is backlash. And when there's backlash, the New York Times changes how it operates. And I think that has been iterating and happening over and over again for many years. And it's created this kind of tension in the newsroom of places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And you know, those are the big examples. To be clear, I think it's happening everywhere. And again, I think it's happening across the political spectrum. But they have to make really difficult choices about how they're going to appease those readers. And they don't agree. I mean, the reporters who work there don't agree. The New York Times is famous, infamous now for all the interpersonal drama that happens inside its newsroom and the kind of tension between the old guard and the new journalists and the sort of objective, neutral ideology of the old guard and the sort of new journalism that's coming up that has an emphasis on subjectivity and lived experiences and their version of truth. And there's a lot of tension there. So, you know, I think it's a really complex thing. And I think there's a lot of forces that are pushing it there. I think it's the economics of the industry. It's how journalists are being trained in college. It's the increased representation we're seeing in newsrooms and the tension that that creates. And some of that, to be clear, is really healthy. Obviously, I think it's really good. I think sort of sorting out how that is going to come out in the news is a positive thing. But right now, it's there's kind of this reckoning happening where I think a lot of readers are bailing on the news they don't like and running towards the news they do like. And that is, again, you know, ties back to sort of the issue that I'm trying to address with Tangle is a lot of people are gravitating towards the things that support their preconceived notions about the world and make them feel comfortable in their worldviews and not challenge them. And that's a really big, I think, scary issue that the country is going through right now. But yeah, there are a lot of things at play. Irony is the wrong word, but there is something to the fact that a subscription-based model, right? The very thing that is kind of destroying the credibility of whether they're right-leaning, left-leaning, whatever those news outlets are, right? Going from an ad-based model to a subscription-based model, just like you said, is making all these large media organizations more dependent upon the opinions of their readers and their viewers. That very thing, subscriptions, that's roiling those organizations is the very thing that is enabling something like a Tangle News, something like Substack Writers, the very thing that is lifting up one group and allowing 50,000 plus readers to tangle every day for that whole thing to exist is the very thing that is kind of destroying larger organizations from within. Don't know if I have a larger question there, but it is really interesting how the exact same model is empowering one group while dismantling another one. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think in some ways, I think the Times, the sort of original sin of the news organization and organizations like the Times was their dependency on ad revenue, which I think drove a lot of them to step into the more sensationalist headlines and story angles and that kind of thing. But you're right that, you know, the Times led the subscription drive and now those subscribers have a huge amount of input on the content because they can sort of, you know, vote with their feet, as we say. They can unsubscribe if they want and walk away. And when 
hundreds or thousands of them do that in unison, it's a pretty scary thing for a newsroom. What's sort of coming out in the wash here, which is interesting, is I think a lot of people, myself included, are realizing that the diverse revenue stream is actually the best answer. Tangle actually recently started running ads, some ads in our free newsletter, which we've never done before. And we're sort of doing it as an experiment to see what kind of advertisers want to advertise with us and what kind of revenue it draws. And there's no big impetus for that other than the fact that our competitors all have both ad and subscription revenue and they have more money than us. So they're beating us at a lot of stuff. And I wanted to kind of swing back on that. But coming into it with this base of subscribers that I know is here for this balanced, even-handed news makes me feel really safe and really insulated because it's like, I never have to take an ad. I don't want to. I never have to work with an ad partner I don't care about or feel untoward toward. And I never have to think about how something I'm writing is driving a bunch of traffic or going to get shared or a bunch of clicks in order to please an advertiser. So I think there is some middle ground here that's kind of coming out of this big conflict that's been happening in the news industry. And I think what a lot of news organizations are starting to see is that a diverse revenue stream is actually the most liberating. It's the thing that will free you to really say and write and deliver the news in the most honest and straightforward way possible. And I have no idea how that's going to shake out at organizations like the New York Times. I mean, frankly, I think the Times and Fox News and CNN and Wall Street Journal, I think their brands are all in in a lot of trouble because they alienate basically half the country and they're going to continue to do that for decades to come. And I don't know how to rehabilitate that image if I was working there or running those companies. So I view that as an opening for something new to to sort of rise out of the ashes of their lessons. And that's certainly what I'm I'm hoping Tangle can be. And I don't want to be too hard on the New York Times or other legacy media organizations. And I imagine you don't either. The New York Times, just to use one example, was reacting to something that was happening to it in the early 2000s. And it was basically bleeding to death in terms of revenue because when the digital age happened, the value of the written word plummeted, right? In the same way that the value of a song plummeted in the age of Napster, anything that can be digitally recreated, all of a sudden its value basically goes to zero. And, 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 and words were like the first thing under the sword because if you can access those words anywhere, as you know, like they can just be instantly digitally replicated. What is the value of it, right? So I can understand why they went to a subscription model simply to survive, but I'm with you, Isaac. I'm not sure what the best path forward for large organizations like that is. And in fact, to go to a episode that I recently did with Jay Shapiro, he's a filmmaker and writer. We were talking about charitable giving and how something like GoFundMe has really increased the rate of charity, partially because you have a one-to-one connection with the person you're giving the money to, right? I'm not having to donate to some larger charity where I'm not entirely sure what my donation is going to be used for, where it's going to go, how much of my money is going to overhead versus actually going to a child starving in some other country. But with a GoFundMe, assuming that it's not fraudulent, I know exactly where that money is going to and for what purpose, ideally, right? And I'm wondering in the digital age, if kind of a similar phenomenon is happening at scale with organizations like Tangle, Substack, and others, where I don't exactly know what the morals and values of a 200 plus wide staff room are, or how biased or unbiased any one of those individuals might be, because they're kind of behind, understandably, like a curtain of professionalism. I don't want to say secrecy, but there's something there that isn't there 
when I say subscribe to Tangle. I get a chance to know who you are. In fact, if you sign up for the Tangle newsletter, you encourage that subscriber to reach out to you and give you the exact reason for why they signed up. You immediately want to create a one-to-one connection. So I'm wondering if that's part of what also is happening in a digital age. I think people are craving a one-to-one connection to the creators. Do you think that's on base? Definitely. I mean, I I think the major built-in advantage that I have over some of the legacy media outlets, which to be clear, I don't imagine I'll ever be as big as or have the reach of and you know i'm not interested in building a 200 person newsroom my dream for tangle is that you know our audience hits the millions but i am running a really small well paid tight knit team that's kind of my vision for the future but i think that that advantage that i have is the personal one to one connection i try and reply to emails like you mentioned when somebody signs up they tell me why they're there i read all those welcome emails that come in when people tell me how they found tangle and where they're reading from and i often reply to a lot of them and that connection i think especially in the political realm gives people a person that they can kind of empathize with and connect to and it's disarming in some ways i mean i've gotten really like nasty emails, you know, in response to a newsletter from a subscriber who's maybe fairly new or saw us pop up on Twitter or in an ad somewhere and they clicked and subscribed and they get a newsletter and something in there really pisses them off and they write in, you know, like they would comment on a Facebook post or leave a comment on an article they find online. And when I reply and say, hey, like, thanks for the feedback, you know, I appreciate hearing from you. I'm sorry that this made you feel this way. Here are like three reasons why I wrote that sentence that way. And I hope you keep reading and understand where we're coming from. I mean, I get responses that are like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I never expected anybody to actually read this or I can't believe you actually replied. I just went and subscribed. Like I became a paying member or they engage what I'm you know, writing about and they say, you know what? I hadn't thought about like that. Thank you for responding and sorry for being so rude. I mean, that interaction happens every day. And I think that's a really big advantage that I have. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of other newsletter creators and YouTubers and stuff who have said to me that they think it's insane that I try and reply to emails that come into the newsletter and that it's like a total waste of time. And and I actually think it's both a really good decision in terms of the humanity of the news and making people kind of empathize with folks they might disagree with. But I also think it's a really good business decision. I think it pushes people into feeling a really strong connection to the product. And that often leads them to support us financially, which I'm interested in both of those things. I I want the revenue and I also want the kind of human connection. And I want to make politics a little bit more palatable and a little bit more human for people because I think we're losing a lot of that in the typical legacy media. Yeah, I totally agree. And what you're talking about, how when someone sends an email, fires off a missive where you know they curse you out or rant at you or say, attack your opinions, and then you reply, and all of a sudden that demeanor completely changes. I've heard this story almost verbatim, like a dozen times from people who have large followings on Twitter or Instagram, where they'll get just some, I mean, a crazy, racist, sexist, bigoted, you know, Twitter message. And then they'll just reply and be like, hey, your words hurt me, or why do you feel that way? And then almost instantly, it'll change exactly as you described. Oh my God, I never thought you'd reply. I didn't really mean it. I was just angry. I kind of think of it as the car in traffic phenomenon. 
Like we depersonalize people when we can't see them. You know, you're not cursing at a person, you're cursing at a car. And I think we just need to remember that there's a person inside the car. (laughs) And I think we can, in the digital landscape, really forget we're not cursing in an avatar. There's a red-blooded person behind that avatar who you're talking to. I guess it's heartening to know that in your experience, when you make a one-to-one connection with someone, that changes quickly. Yeah, no, definitely. To me, that's a really big function of why a lot of the independent creators are thriving right now. And I think it also is reflective of the frustration with the other media outlets. People who have for a long time been consuming that news and feeling helpless to correct it or to get its attention or to push back on it are so used to commenting and throwing something out in the ether and just screaming into the void to actually get a response in that way. It's a really powerful thing. This is slightly off topic to the next question, but I want to ask it to you. What's your advice for young journalists and political writers, maybe fresh out of college or a couple of years out of college? who want to do the kind of writing that you aspire to do, that you do, but have to make ends meet, have to work for the Huffington Post, have to work for Fox, have to work for New York Times, have to work for NPR in order to pay their bills. What advice do you have for them and for people coming out of college who have a passion for journalism? I mean, look, I think working at those institutions is super valuable. First of all, Tangled does not exist without those places existing. I'm aggregating some of their content in every newsletter I have a great deal of respect for them in a vacuum in terms of some of the thinkers and the writers that they put forward. My big issue is that the ideological lines are a little too clearly drawn for me. And there's a lot of problems when you read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and their coverage of the exact same incident and the stories look entirely different. I mean, I think that's a real issue that we all have to reckon with. And the solution is really only to just consume a diverse set of news. But Those places have the best journalists in the world still. I mean, in terms of experience and pay and education, and there's a ton to be learned there. I mean, I spent eight or nine years working in newsrooms and freelancing for places and learning from people like that after, you know, three years in a college newsroom before I sort of started planning my route with Tangle and building this thing that was mine. You know, I still go to journalism conferences and I still read sort of like intermedia, navel gazy drama stories to hear about how newsrooms are functioning and how they're falling apart and what kinds of things newsrooms are experimenting with. All of that stuff, I think, is really good experience. So, my advice is if you want to make it in the media world, it's really hard to get a job and you should take opportunities when you get them and use them as you know, jumping off points for other gigs. And I think that's totally fine. And the independent creator route's not easy. I know a lot of people who've tried it and bailed on it because it's too much work without the kind of institutional support you get from a lot of these other news organizations. I happen to really love it and really like working for myself, but I don't think that's going to be true of everyone. So there are a lot of pros to the kind of traditional newsroom route. And I think Once you're in newsrooms like that, it's just really important to be a fresh set of eyes and to be willing to challenge the kind of status quo of how things work and what kind of ideas are accepted. I think that's a really good good thing to do as a young reporter. I think it'll earn you respect in most newsrooms. And I think it's a good way to learn kind of how the sausage is made, you know? It's one of my favorite phrases, how the sausage is made. (laughs) I, (laughs) I use it all the time. Speaking of sayings, you have this saying that really hooked me. You said, news shouldn't be made for TV. Can you expand on that? 
Yeah, I tell people a lot, definitely, that is one of my my go-to expressions is that you should watch your sports and read about your news. When news is being tailored to become entertainment, I think it ceases to become news. If the goal is to keep people engaged in the content that you're creating, I think that's totally okay. If the goal is to make people feel like they're watching a Tom Cruise movie and they're on the edge of their seat and they're exhilarated and they want more of it, that's a problem. And we've seen pretty overtly with the advent of the 24-hour news cycle, which didn't always exist, that these news companies, especially the ones that are on TV, are competing with each other for eyes. And the way they do that is by trying to make their shows more and more entertaining. Obviously, versions of this have kind of come and gone. I mean, the old days of the Thunderdome of the 1v1 against each other, one Republican, one Democrat debating a topic. I mean, that kind of crossfire stuff is sort of dead and gone now. But it's been replaced with, you know, scary music and images that are cherry picked and narratives that are being drawn specifically to serve a certain ideological purpose. And anybody who watches CNN or MSNBC or Fox News can pick up on this. I think there are absolutely times when television news can do things that traditional or written or audio media can't. The war in Ukraine is a great example. I think CBS and Fox News and CNN, who, despite all their domestic stuff, by the way, still have really, really great international coverage. Those news organizations send reporters out in the field and get really harrowing footage from war zones or disasters. And sometimes those images are really good at driving home a story and making it resonate and making it clear to people what's going on. But I think oftentimes that kind of news falls into the trap of somebody's sitting down on their TV and they have like four options to watch. And it's like a rerun of some crazy action movie like Django or something. It's the basketball game that's on tonight. It's their news channel or it's National Geographic. And how are we going to make it so interesting that they pick us? And those kinds of pressures, I think, create a really dangerous product. And I see it in my personal life. I mean, the friends and family who I have who mostly consume their news from MSNBC or Fox or CNN, they are angrier and less informed and a lot more partisan than my friends and family who mostly don't watch TV and get their news from various news outlets or podcasts or whatever. And I, I think that pretty much speaks for itself. Would you say then that if someone is exclusively getting their news from television, that they'd be better off? not consuming any news at all, if that's their only source? It's hard to say they'd be better off not consuming any news at all. I mean, to some degree, I'm sure there are scenarios where that might be true. I would say that their understanding of what's really happening in the world, and I know that's a squishy statement, but I think is at the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, look, I spend all day reading and writing about politics and consuming political news through various outlets, podcasts, written, YouTube, television. And when I watch, whether it's the local six o'clock news, which is basically now just stories of horrible shootings and car accidents and robberies and all sorts of scary stuff, or I watch Tucker Carlson or Brian Stelter or Rachel Maddow, 
it's very clear to me the things that are being left out. It's obvious. And for people who only get their news from one or two of those channels, all I can say is there's a really big piece of the pie that you're not getting. And it's a piece of pie that would probably give you a more nuanced and balanced view on the happenings in the country. And um, until people start diversifying their news consumption, I think a lot of them get trapped in those really partisan boxes. I've described myself, and I think this label applies to most people, as a kind of political build-a-bear, you know, made up of a bunch of different views that don't always necessarily track consistently. You've described yourself as politically incongruent, which I will admit is more artful. But why are outlets like Tangle as comparatively rare as they are, when I would imagine that most of us would describe ourselves one of these ways? It's interesting. I mean, I I guess I don't know that most of us would describe ourselves that way. I think the tribalism in the country is at a really, really high point right now. I know there are a lot of surveys that show independents are the largest political group in the US now and stuff like that's really encouraging. But there's also a lot of studies that show if you kind of dig into that and you push somebody a little bit on what their political leanings are, oftentimes you're going to find that they end up being a part of one of the two political tribes or the other, the right or the left, Republicans or Democrats. So I guess I'm not convinced that we are the majority as much as I would love us to be. I don't know if that's true or not. I do think a big part of it is that humility in American politics is not really common. And the concept of saying, I don't know something, or I don't really have an opinion, or my opinion's not fully formed, or I don't feel confident opining about this specific subject, that's really rare. And I think that mindset is very much attached to people who describe themselves as being politically incongruent or describe themselves as kind of heterodox. And so because it's so common for people to want to have answers for something and want to have a a worldview attached to something, I think a lot of people are more likely to just sort of jump on one of the big two bandwagons and say, this is my team. And then they're kind of left trying to justify everything that team does. I do think the grounds are shifting right now. I think that's happening for sure. People like me are succeeding. There's a lot of independent-minded writers, I would say, or people who are sort of rejecting the legacy media who are thriving on platforms like Substack or with independent newsletters. Semaphore just launched their new product, which is, you know, I think takes some elements of what Tangle's doing and is being run by a bunch of ex-Bloomberg and New York Times and BuzzFeed people. And they're doing that because they realize there's a real market for a news organization whose ideology is not clear from from reading it. And so I think the powers are shifting, but I think we're sort of just in the very beginning of that. I actually think this is is kind of a rising tide, and it'll be some time before most Americans are abandoning their various tribes. I agree with you. But let me redefine what I'm trying to get at with political Build-A-Bear, politically incongruent. Even when you ask Trump voters, and I imagine you've spoken to many of them on the ground, I imagine that's probably how you were able to identify Trump's path to victory in 2016. When you ask them questions about their politics, they're not going to track one-to-one with every pillar of the conservative platform. I mean, like, let's just take abortion, for instance. I mean, opinions about abortion among Trump voters, even if at scale, they're going to differ in many ways from someone's opinion on the left. There's a wide spectrum of views about abortion 
if you ask, you know, 100 different Trump voters what their views are on it, they're not all going to say the same thing. And I think similarly, many people on the left, and again, these spectrums are very large, they're not going to march and step with everything in the quote unquote woke wing of their party. So that's kind of more of what I mean. And that if you talk to someone who identifies himself as on the right or on the left, you're not always going to know exactly what their views are on every single thing. And even if they're 80% right, they might be 20% left or vice versa. And I want to get your thoughts on this. I don't think most people are all one thing, if that makes sense. I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, that I do agree with. I guess my answer to that is basically like the two-party system that we have that's kind of dominating everything, which is a really big, obvious issue that the country has. I think, you know, the kind of results of that two-party system is, you know, I, I just interviewed this guy not long ago who's writing a book about the myth of the left and the right. His name's Herlem Lewis, I think. And he put it in a really interesting way. He said, it's sort of like people walk to the grocery store and before they go into the grocery store, they're given an option of choosing one cart full of groceries, cart A or cart B. And both of those carts are full of stuff that they like and they don't like, and they can't mix and match them at all. They just have to pick one of the carts and go home. And I think that is really the reality of our political duopoly right now is everybody has stuff in their cart that they don't like and some stuff in their cart that they like. And we're all left sort of picking the cart that just has more of the stuff that we like. And once we do that, we're put in this really weird position of oftentimes trying to defend why the stuff in our cart that we hate is actually not that bad. And a lot of Americans spend a lot of time doing that. So I do agree with you that the number of people who read the Democratic Party platform for 2020 front to back and say they agree with more than 90% of it is probably pretty small. I don't think there are a ton of those people. I think there's a lot of people who read it front to back and agree with 60% of it. And that's enough for them to vote for Democrats when the Republican Party platform maybe aligns with them 20 or 30% of the time. And that's definitely, when I talk about being politically incongruent, I'm really just trying to reject the premise that I have to be on one side or the other. I mean, people ask me all the time when they first sign up, so, you know, what's the deal? Do you vote for Democrats or Republicans? And I just say, what state am I voting in? What year is it? What's the election? Who's on the ballot? It's impossible for me to answer that question. And people ask me, are you left or right? And I say, I don't know. Ask me how I feel about an issue. You know, my my feelings on minimum wage increases are sometimes aligned with the left and my feelings on religious freedom are often aligned with the right. So I'm not really sure how you want me to define myself. And that too, I think, is a really effective way to discuss politics that maybe can help push the country in a more productive direction in terms of understanding each other. I completely agree. And I feel like a lot of people, when they ask that question, you know, who do you vote for? How do you self-identify? They really just want to be able to put you in a bucket of either good or bad people. That's really what it is. Back when I was on um, <laughs> a dating app earlier this year, I listed myself as moderate, not for any kind of agenda-based reason, but I got probably half a dozen messages. They would match with me. So I guess they were interested, but then they would ask first thing on the top, hey, so I noticed you listed yourself as moderate. What exactly do you mean by that? And my response would always be, I just don't think you should be able to predict what my stance on abortion is because you know what my stance on gun rights is. 
And I feel like we're kind of just locked in. And Isaac, you and I could talk about the many perils of a two-party system probably for three hours. So I don't want to linger here for too long. But I definitely think that it is a huge problem. And it's almost like the two-party system problem is feeding into the problem with news coverage. And they're almost like it's trapped in this anti-virtuous cycle of creating this false dichotomy that doesn't really exist. Yeah, to me, that's very apparent. You read about a certain event in the news, and then that event must be defined in terms of what it says about the national political parties. And when that happens, it's a really ineffective way to talk about politics, first of all. And second of all, it sort of forces people into their kind of knee-jerk, emotional, tribal reaction about which side they're on and who they're going to align themselves with. A great example I heard recently was George W. Bush decided to invade Iraq and he was described as sort of lurching the party to the right. And then when Donald Trump decided to pull all the troops out of the Middle East, he was described as lurching the party to the right. And it's like, okay, well, like what is the right then? The point in both instances was to sort of make these candidates seem like they were super hyper scary type Republican. And that was sort of how it was defined in the news. But there's like no ideological core there that they're actually moving in concert with. And I mean, that's a really effective way, I think, to describe the problem is if you are looking to define everything in these sort of Republican versus Democrat, that kind of duopoly, then you inevitably start ascribing what you want or what you think being far right or far left means. And there's no clean way to talk about that stuff in broad strokes. I mean, the Republican Party of today is not like the Republican Party of 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And the same goes for Democrats. And it's much more productive to just state what it actually is. You know, Donald Trump decided he wants the US to have less involvement in wars overseas. And that's a much more accurate way to describe what's going on than saying he's pushing the party to the right. Yes. Yes. Uh, I discussed this with Greg Lukianoff with FIRE about how a lot of people on the left will use just the description of being on the right as a coded kind of slur, right? Like FIRE, for instance, Freedom for Individual Rights and Expression, I believe is the new moniker. It used to be about education specifically. Now it's much more broad. But I kept seeing it get described as a right-leaning or right-wing organization, even though countless times they defended the rights of students on campus and elsewhere to express left-wing positions against right-wing opposition within their school. And I'm just noticing this increasing tendency. And then this is happening on the right, describing the left as well, but I'm seeing it much more rapidly happen on the left of just describing something like Donald Trump's move to remove troops, describing it as right-wing or pulling to the right as if to just let the viewer know or let the reader know, hey, what he's doing is bad, as opposed to letting the listener, the viewer, the reader make that decision for themselves. Well, how do I feel about him removing troops in the Middle East? Maybe it's not, like you were saying, a left or right-wing thing. Maybe it's just something that's happening in the world, an action that is taking place in the universe, and then I have to make up my own mind whether or not this is good or bad and if it aligns with my morals and values. But I feel like that injecting of opinion coded as a non-opinion by just saying right wing, is trying to influence the viewer to feel a certain way about an outcome that they might not have otherwise felt. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that that's part of it. It's very obvious to me, I think, when we're defining things in terms 
that we don't like or defining something we don't like in terms that make it very political or associated with one side or the other, that in itself is a politically motivated act. And a lot of reporters do it. A lot of journalists do it. A lot of people on the right and the left do it. And the fire example is a great one. I similarly always thought it was so bizarre that people would sort of frame it as this kind of libertarian right-wing organization because it's like a fundamentally liberal idea that people have freedom of expression and can say and do whatever they want in public as long as they're not harming somebody. I mean, that that is like the essence of liberalism. One would think. Right. And it's like, <laughs> I think they're a great organization. And I think it's a shame to see the way that some of their work gets framed really positively and some of it gets framed really negatively when they're pretty ideologically consistent. So, you know, that that's a really good illustration of it. And it's a really good encapsulation of sort of the lack of that core ideological center when 50 years ago, freedom of speech was so clearly identified with the liberal left-wing political party. And today it's, you know, right-wing conservative Republican politicians are hammering free speech stuff and saying that they're being censored and people are being censored and they're running on campaigns of free expression and freedom of religion and all these things. And, you know, and now it's the quote unquote left-wing party that's sort of talking about censorship and deplatforming and the need for all these things. And it's, it's a good example of just like how quickly that stuff can get turned on its head and why it's often much more accurate to just talk about it on issue by issue basis. hundred percent. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how one defines themselves politically depends on what decade it is, where one lives, and so many other factors. To change gears real quick, I do want to try and make a robust defense of opinion outsourcing and get your thoughts on it. Because I think a lot of us do want to know what to think or how to think about things. And I don't think most of us want to consciously ape what professional commentators say. But I do think that there is a real desire, and I think we can find the evidence for this literally everywhere, in growing our own opinions atop the scaffolding of people who are two categories, A, ideologically aligned with us, and B, more informed than we are. So let's say, for instance, that instead of Tangle, you created a different outlet with very strongly defined views that were backed up by your decade plus of news reporting and political expertise. You made your bias clear, but your audience knew your opinions were rooted in experience and a work ethic that meant you were thinking and writing about these topics 12 hours a day, the time that most people who aren't in news just simply don't have. So in a way, people would outsource that mental labor to you. They'd outsource that work to you. They'd still have to decide whether to accept or reject your conclusions. But if your readers and you were politically aligned and you did the heavy lifting of researching and sourcing, I guess my larger question is, is that actually a problem? I don't think it's actually a problem. Look, I read overtly ideological writers and news outlets all day, every day. And I learn a lot from them. I think the fundamental problem is that people are not getting a diverse source of information. I sort of used this example or alluded to it, I guess, before, but I wrote a whole article about how political bias in the news works and, and how media bias works. And one of the things I did just as an exercise was I picked one random like headline event from that week. And it happened to be the trucker protest in Ottawa, which I only chose literally because it was the front page you know, news item the day before. And I just picked the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and their two hard news teams, not the opinion sections, their news teams. 
and just put them side by side in the piece and talked about the differences in their quote placement, who they led with, what sources they used, the language choices they made, how they described the exact same events differently. And the conclusion you get from seeing that is you can't get something resembling a kind of middle ground or neutral or holistic truth without just reading both of them, without seeing them side by side or reading one and then reading the other and being able to say, okay, I got this mixed perspective. And that's like, that's their hard news team. That's supposed to be both of their most neutral take on this issue. People are biased. People's sourcing is biased. Story selection is biased. Language choices are biased. So when you talk about, you know, like an understanding between a reader and an opinion writer that I'm going to this person for this specific take and this person is giving me this specific take, I think that's great. For me, it can be intellectually riveting to see some conservative writers try and defend something Donald Trump did that they very clearly would have hated two years ago. I mean, watching people twist themselves up in knots like that can be fascinating and illuminating for different reasons. And oftentimes when you go to those people consistently and they write about something that you disagree with, or if they take a stance that you disagree with, then you have this built-in trust with them. I agree with this person on 85% of everything they write. I've been reading them because they're a conservative columnist. And now today I open their magazine and they're saying all these things I don't agree with. And that friction is often an entry point for people to change their minds. I mean, there are certainly writers who I really respect, who I have an easier time engaging their content when they're writing something I really strongly disagree with because I have that built-in trust and that built-in respect for them. And because I sort of recognize them as someone on my team or, or a trustworthy source or an ally or whatever it is. That is totally fine, as long as you're just not going back to the same well over and over again. I mean, to me, and you know, I, of course, this naturally kind of bookends into a self-promotion for Tangle, but I do really think like what we're doing, this sort of top to bottom, you're going to get six or seven diverse views on one story is kind of the only way to really have a holistic view at on a news item. And, and that's why I built it. I mean, that's why I did it is because... I saw that there was a need for that and I didn't think a lot of people were providing it. In many ways, Tangle reminds me of a magazine that I used to have a weekly subscription to. It was called The Week. Yeah, I read it. I still get a subscription to The Week. It's so good, yeah. Yeah, it's a great magazine. And you know, I think the failure that The Week has, I think, is A, that they don't clearly identify sort of the ideological composition of the people that they're quoting. And B, I think now they the tension that they're creating in their content is sort of between traditional conservative establishment Republican-esque thinkers like Mitt Romney and the left. And I think they're missing a huge segment of the sort of the intellectual Trump voter that is just like totally not on their radar and not included in what they're doing. But, you know, I agree. It's a great magazine that often covers a lot of the things Tangle covers. And funny enough, I didn't even know The Week existed. When I started Tangle, I thought I came up with this brilliant idea all by myself. And then about six months into it, somebody was like, hey, have you ever read the magazine The Week? They kind of do it. You're doing like just in print form and slower. And then I got a subscription and now, you know, I love it. I read it whenever it comes in because it's cool to see how they cover some of the same topics we do. And something you just said now about 
how they're leaving a large group of opinions and views out, which is troubling, right? I wish that people in general, whether they're at the week or anywhere around the United States, could understand that from a first principles perspective, it's important to hear what a Trump voter thinks for the very same reason it's important to have religious or ethnic or racial minority representation within a newsroom in that you don't want people who aren't part of that group just assuming what that group is thinking and then ascribing beliefs to that group that might not even be accurate. Whether you agree with the person's view or a group's view or not, it's important to hear it from that group because then otherwise you won't know if you're being accurate or not. And it oftentimes feels that the same, not to go on too large of a tangent because I do want to get to a couple more questions with you, Isaac, but it's part of the same problem. And a lot of times people who champion, rightly champion diversity and representation in something like a newsroom won't understand that from, a, again, a first principles perspective, that's the very reason it's important to have reporters who don't come from a college or upper to upper middle class background, reporters who are from a conservative background in your newsroom. Those kinds of representation are equally important for the same reason having racial, ethnic, and religious representation in a newsroom is important as well. And it just seems like this huge blind spot that should be holistic, but it's not. Two of my favorite exercises that I do with friends or family or anybody who like we get into it really deep, chopping it up about politics. I love to ask people, first of all, you know, if it's a conservative voter, can you actually tell me what liberals think about immigration. What do you think your average liberal, my mom sitting right here, she's a lifelong Democratic voter. What do you think my mom thinks about immigration, her position on immigration is? And the incredible degree to which people don't actually know what they think the opposition to them believes is pretty startling. I mean, the response to that, if you're talking to like a very dialed in conservative is like, oh, they want open borders and they want to make all 12 million undocumented immigrants in the US legal. And they don't care that, you know, people are streaming over the border. And, and it's like, oh, well, no, actually, a lot of Democrats don't feel that way. Like Democrats tend to actually want border security. They also want humanitarian operations happening on the border and these sorts of things. And they think people should be deported if they have criminal records and all this stuff. I mean, there's tons and tons of polling to reflect that. But it's this view that they've created about the other side. I mean, there's really interesting studies where you can ask ask Democrats what percentage of Republicans they think make over $200,000 a year. And the average answer most Democrats give is like 50% or something. And the real answer is 2%. And you can ask Republicans what percentage of registered Democrats they think are black, and they will say something like 35%. And the real answer is something like 10%. It's amazing. Even aside from the political views, just the very fundamental basic things of who is who that we don't understand about each other. And then the other question I always ask is, when was the last time you changed your mind about a big political issue, which tends to stop a lot of people in their tracks? I mean, my position is you can be the smartest person in the world, but if you haven't changed your mind about something based on new information you got at any point in the last couple of years, then you're either not consuming any news that challenges you, which is a really big issue, or you're really arrogant and you you actually don't have like any intellectual humility because, sorry, there's just no way. If you met somebody who told you they were right about every political issue, you'd laugh in their face because it sounds absurd because it is absurd. But if you haven't changed your mind about anything, 
in the last year or two that's related to politics, then you are that person. You're somebody who thinks they're right about everything, which should be cause for some self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And speaking of having opinions and forming opinions, you said earlier in our conversation, Tangle isn't free from opinions. It's not just a newsletter or a website where it just it gathers other people's opinions and then just lets you make up your own mind. I mean, in a recent essay on Kanye West's descent into, I'm not sure if madness is the right word, but something close to it, if not that, you made it very clear where you stood on the issue and you framed your opinion with your own upbringing as someone of Jewish heritage. So how do you figure out what news stories to weigh in on in a kind of full-throated way where you show your cards, so to speak? How do you decide which news bits to kind of lean in on and say where Isaac Saul stands and which ones to gather other people's opinions and then kind of display them in a more matter-of-fact way? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So I obviously, you know, in the daily newsletter for anybody who reads it Monday through Thursday, I have a section that's labeled my take that is very clearly the space where I get to voice my own opinion about stuff. And I often don't take a super strong position. I would say, you know, maybe 20 or 25% of those newsletters, I feel so strongly and so convinced that one argument is better than the other that I will come out pretty strongly in it. And then we have these Friday editions that are paywalled, which is just a huge range of content. Some of it's like really hard reporting that's sort of fleshed out, maybe closer to investigative journalism. Some of it's just transcripts of interviews. And some of it, like that Kanye piece, are personal opinion pieces that I write. That's just, you know, my my view and description and framing of a story. And it's just meant to be a longer fleshed out version of my take. I try and pick my spots when I feel like I can add something to the discourse that a lot of people aren't talking about or that I'm not seeing offered anywhere else. I mean, any given topic I'm writing about, I'm going to read 25, 30 opinion pieces related to it. I'm going to read dozens of news articles. I'm going to listen to a podcast or two. I'm going to check out some YouTube channels. I'm going to watch Tucker Carlson you know, to see what they're talking about in these various corners of the media space. And by the time that's done, there's usually not like a big original thought that I have to offer. It's more sort of refereeing or calling out inconsistencies that I think are there or saying like, I find this argument really compelling. And so this is sort of where I'm landing on this issue. But then there are times when I do that exercise and I'm just like, is everybody going insane? Why aren't we talking about this? How come this position isn't being represented? How can nobody be seeing this element of the story? And that's usually when I come out really strong, either in my take or I decide to write my own piece that's sort of dedicated to this. And the tangible example that you brought up with the Kanye West story is that there was all this stuff going around about him being anti-Semitic and making these kind of anti-Jew comments about the Jewish media controlling his wife and destroying his reputation and all this stuff. And the thing that I wasn't seeing anybody talk about was that Jews are actually overrepresented in the media. I'm a Jewish reporter. I know a lot of Jewish reporters that, you know, anybody who has worked in a professional newsroom would probably say that they had, you know, a Jewish editor or whatever. And there are lots of really uninteresting reasons for that, I think. It's sort of the cultural social network thing that is the result of all the reasons that certain ethnicities and groups and people of certain financial standing go into certain professions. 
And society is basically just a grouping of a bunch of little cliques. And I think Jews tend to have a proclivity for reading and writing and English and the arts. And so a lot of them go into quote unquote media professions. And that was sort of what I said. I said, like, we can name this and say that this thing is real and also point out that what Kanye West is suggesting is still insane, (laughs) that Jews aren't controlling his wife, the media isn't after him. Jews don't agree amongst themselves on basically anything. We're constantly fighting all the time. And we can acknowledge that, yeah, there are a lot of Jewish reporters and Jewish media executives and also say that just because that's true doesn't mean all of them have the same goal or the same worldview or want the same outcomes. The analogy I used was like, it's like observing that there's a lot of black players in the NBA and then talking about them as if they're all on the same team and play the same position and are the same people. It's like, no, yeah, this thing's real. The NBA is predominantly black, and they're also all individuals who play for different teams and have different skills and different talents and are different individuals and different people. And that just felt like nobody was saying that. That was like totally lost in the conversation. So that was sort of the thrust of my piece was, it's okay to concede Kanye's right. There are a lot of Jews in the media. And then also explain why what he was suggesting is totally nonsensical. And that kind of drove me out of the cave and made me write a really long 4,000 word piece. That was that was basically my take on the issue. Yeah, it's a truly excellent piece. I'm going to link it in the show notes for anyone who's interested in reading it. And I highly recommend you do. Before we get to our final question, in that essay about West, you actually quote Mary Daria Russell, who said, quote, the Jewish sages also tell us that God dances when his children defeat him in argument, when they stand on their feet and use their minds, end quote. I could see how this sort of cultural upbringing could directly affect how you view something like politics. I mean, <laughs> if you can and should argue with God's opinion, I imagine that taking some political pundit's word as gospel seems almost like a kind of heresy. Did you find that your personal background influenced and affected how you approach the news and even potentially led to something like Tangle? It's interesting. I mean, first of all, I think yes, and probably in a lot of ways that I don't totally fully grasp or understand yet. I mean, I'm sure when I look back on stuff, I'll see more and more connections to that as I get older. My really formative experience that ties directly to that is that I spent six months in a yeshiva after college. I basically got an offer from a campus rabbi to go to what's called a Boltshuva yeshiva, which is, you know, a yeshiva is a, a religious Jewish school where basically all you do all day is religious learning and practice and prayer. And a Boltshuva yeshiva is for people who are raised as Reformed Jews, which is what I was, which is sort of, you know, the not very observant Orthodox Jews, but the more secular type Jew. And the six months that I had there were exhilarating, extremely intellectually stimulating and challenging. And I was totally a fish out of water and I was pushed out of my comfort zone. And when I was there, because I saw the world so differently from the teachers and the rabbis who were in this religious school, I was the subject of their adoration and attention. And they wanted to experience that tension with me. They wanted to talk to me about stuff. They wanted to argue with me about my worldview. They wanted to challenge me on my worldview. And that kind of ethos and that that Maria Doria Russell quote, that ethos is very much, in my opinion, present in Judaism. You're supposed to be skeptical of even the word of God. You're supposed to challenge these things and question them and engage them. And even in this really, really religious setting, 
that was encouraged. I was told to do that. I was told to ask questions. I was told to not just accept something if I didn't want to. I mean, the example I often talk about in that experience was that I didn't wear a yarmulke in the yeshiva for the first four months I was there or so. And when you're in a yeshiva and you're not wearing a yarmulke, you get a lot of weird looks, you know, people don't really understand it. And my simple answer when people would ask me was just, I don't totally know why I'm supposed to wear it yet. And I haven't really bought in on it yet. And there were students who I was there with who, you know, were on the same six month program I was on, who put it on the first day and I could ask them, why are you wearing a yarmulke? And they couldn't really give me the explanation for it. And I wasn't ostracized for that. That attitude was really fostered and it was appreciated by the religious teachers who were there, which I do think is an interesting and really cool and frankly rewarding part of the Jewish culture. And so, you know, as it ties into the Kanye piece, that was sort of my, I was kind of making light of it too, that again, talking about Jews as a monolith is just so, it's hilarious to most Jews who are, you know, embedded in some kind of Jewish community or culture because we are so infamous for having all these disagreements with each other and arguing about every little thing. And even in the most religious schools and settings in the world, in Israel and yeshivas in Israel, rabbis are arguing with each other nonstop about the meaning of scripture, you know, and, and one word and one vowel. And so that we all agree on our worldview and want to have some sort of outcome for Kanye West is just a really kind of funny, absurd thing. Yes, totally agree. I mean, as someone who lives in Los Angeles and and works in the entertainment industry, (laughs) I know quite a few Jews and some of them are my close friends. And just one thing I would say to yes and you, Isaac, is to anyone out there who thinks that they really have a group, whatever that group might be, religious, ethnic, racial, political, whatever, if you really feel like you have them pegged, like you really feel like you know them well, my encouragement would just be to meet more of them because you're probably wrong. (laughs) But I feel like that saying, to kind of crib something from that story you just told, Isaac, I think that question, why are you wearing the yarmulke, just writ large, there's so much wisdom there, right? Because the yarmulke could be metaphorical, right? Like, why do you have the opinions you have? Why do you think the things that you think? Is it because someone else told you to think that? Is it because it's part of your political tribe, et cetera? I think just like taking that moment to step back and figure out, why am I wearing this thing? You know, why am I holding it so tightly? Is it because I truly believe in it? Is it because I've done all my research? Is it because I've thought long and hard about it? Or am I just wearing it because someone handed it to me when I walked in the building? And that's why. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you saying that. Thankfully, I think there's a lot more people in the world who are kind of viewing things in those terms these days, which I think is a really good and healthy thing. And, And I'm proud of myself for kind of taking that position at the age I was and in the environment I was in because there was definitely a lot of social pressure to not do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I can only imagine the social pressure was considerable. You know, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Isaac. And I think the work that you and your team are doing with Tangle is of vital importance, not to pump up your ego too much. I've spoken about this final question quite a bit on the show, whether it's with author and journalist Amanda Ripley or John Wood Jr. and Monica Guzman from Braver Angels this ramping phenomenon of political division and extremism and how to potentially solve it. And there's a bunch of different prescriptions, right? You describe Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where you grew up as, quote, one of the most politically divided places in the United States, end quote. And so I guess my question to you is, Isaac, and it's a big one. 
I imagine you're familiar with Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yes, I've actually never read it or watched it. I don't know if it's a movie or a book. It's a book. Yeah. The reason it's called Bowling Alone is it chronicles how after World War II in the late 1940s and into the 1950s and 1960s, bowling alleys became incredibly popular around the United States. And so they flourished. They popped up everywhere. Hundreds, thousands of bowling alleys, one in almost every single town. And what the bowling alley represented was a place like a church or like a social group or a fraternal organization or a book club, but these larger organizations where people within a town, neighbors, could get to know one another outside of work and outside of home and just mingle and interact with one another. And Bowling Alone was talking about how those places over the last few decades have just simply disappeared. And so we as Americans really, outside of maybe social clubs that we start ourselves or little cliques we might have, don't have many opportunities to get to know one another in person outside of work, where you're probably not going to get too personal, lest HR rain down on you, or home, people you are intimately connected with, your dating, your family, your close friends, right? And, and how this is affecting the very fabric of American life, because we're knowing each other less and less. And when we don't know each other, we begin to make larger and larger assumptions, whether that be about groups or otherwise, our very neighbors. So I guess my question is, right? Is there a way to bridge the work of a tangle in the digital space with the problem of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is the physical realm, right? Like, can we solve the problem of bowling alone, which is the disintegration of physical companionship and commonality and communion in person with one another with digital solutions? Is it possible to bridge that digital physical divide to start to bring people back together? I'm glad you brought this up. I'm remembering now that I think I read a review of Bowling Alone, which resonated with me about the way it explores the kind of lack of community and and the result of that lack of community on the country. And, and when community becomes you know, your political affiliation, the kind of dangers of that, which I think is a really profound thing to explore. And yeah, I'm going to have to add that to my book list to come. I mean, look, first of all, there are some organizations doing this already. Braver Angels is a really good one that brings, quote unquote, reds and blues together to have these conversations in person. I've done some work with them. I've been on their podcast and had their founder on my podcast and gone to a few of their workshops. I think it's a really interesting idea. It is a big question. It is really hard. I mean, my personal perspective is that there are basically has to be a kind of grassroots movement for this. And the reason I say that is because I don't think any single leader at this point in this moment could convince their followers or disciples or whatever you want to call them to truly engage the other side in an honest way. I mean, you imagine what does it look like to sort of bring something like Tangle into the physical space? And what would happen if Donald Trump came out tomorrow and said, all my followers, if you love me, you should take out your Clinton-loving neighbor for a beer and talk to them about politics. I think we're so far gone past that, that like he's lost control of the train and that wouldn't work. People would think, you know, the Illuminati got to him and he was a sellout. I mean, that that would be the response. And the same is true, you know, if Barack Obama did that, who's arguably the most popular politician on the left right now, people would think that he wasn't taking the threat of Trump seriously enough and they would all dismiss him. And so as corny as it sounds, I think it really can only start with sort of these individual acts 
of generosity and, and open-mindedness to people. I mean, I get a lot of questions from readers who are like, I have this big tension with my uncle who's a diehard Trumper and I don't know how to talk to him. And I'm like, just grab a six pack of beer and go over to his house and sit down and chat with him and, and you know, ask, ask him why he feels the way he does about certain things and what experiences he's had that made him feel that way and, you know, open the door for some understanding. I really, really think that it can only be brought into the physical space and something like Tangle can only succeed in the physical space if there's a really strong grassroots sort of bottom up ideological spread of this concept that we should be doing that, that we should be sharing space with people we really disagree with. And for whatever it's worth, I think it's starting to happen. I think there's enough people out there who feel this way and there are enough commentators out there who are becoming really popular and sort of nudging people. You know, like when I say it can't be led by some major influencer political figure, I mean that so many of the dominant figures in our political world now, they're so entrenched in that position and their followers are so entrenched in that position that they're not going to be able to move them anymore. I don't think they're really in control the way we imagine them to be. But what is happening is a lot of people like me, who are more popular and much bigger than I am, are building followings that are based and founded on this idea that we should be bringing stuff like this into the physical world. And as those people get more popular, I think more people are going to actually act on it. And I think that change will come. So I'm optimistic about it long term, but I'm pessimistic about there being any kind of you know light we can switch on or off, if, if that makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And to yes and you about that part of inviting your uncle out for a six pack, I would just say, don't go into that conversation with your uncle looking to prove him wrong from the jump. And I imagine you probably would echo that sentiment, Isaac. It's just important to listen to how your uncle or aunt or mom or dad or anyone with a different political point of view from you, how they actually think and feel without looking to start an argument. And I think that's something that people really need to kind of resist doing because we're kind of almost addicted to it. I highly recommend anyone listening to this subscribe to Tangle. It's free to sign up and it will help you grow your perspective and potentially even change your mind. And at the very least, it will give you better insight into how your conservative or liberal uncle might actually think rather than how you assume they might think. So Isaac, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for your time out of your busy schedule today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you pointing your listeners to our work. I hope many of them take the jump because I have a feeling they would like what they find. I do too. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.